actually have a lot of opportunities to dig into God's Word um, here at Millington, and so we hope that you take advantage of some of that. Um, and this morning, we're going to dig into God's Word as well. So let me start with this. The nonprofit organization Mars One has set the lofty goal of establishing a human colony on Mars by 2027. Perhaps you've heard of this. They plan to send four pioneers as a test group and then add another four volunteers every two years. They would have to be highly resourceful since they will need to serve as the colony's chefs, farmers, doctors, and engineers. Now, the most striking feature about this, uh, this trip is that there's going to be no return flights. Now, since a one-way trip will take seven months and cost a small fortune, the volunteers need to be willing to die on Mars. Apparently, they haven't watched The Martian with Matt Damon and seen how this turns out. <clears throat> Man, you guys, okay. First service didn't get that. All right. Even Elon Musk, founder of the company SpaceX, has admitted that whoever goes to Mars will die relatively shortly thereafter. Uh, the astronauts will live out their few days on another planet. They will give their lives literally for the mission. Now, despite this obstacle, Mars One has had no problem attracting highly educated people willing to die on another planet. In fact, there were more than 200,000 video applications, and after much meticulous screening, they were whittled down to 100 ambitious visionaries. Applicants were enthusiastically viewing this mission as a way to unite humanity for one extraordinary transcendent cause. In fact, the Mars One website puts it this way. It says, once on Mars, there will be no means of return to Earth. Mars is home. A grounded, deep sense of purpose will help each astronaut maintain his or her psychological stability and focus as they work together towards a shared and better future. And I might simply ask, did you hear that? <laughs> Astronauts must be willing to give their life for a shared and better future. And I wonder today if some of us in here are longing for a shared and better future. Do you believe there is something better than this world has to offer? Now, you may be sitting here saying, why do we need to go to Mars to accomplish that, right? Isn't Jesus coming back to remake this world? And yes, that is true, but that's not the point I would like to make today. In fact, I think the desire to leave our world for another planet is an echo of what people know to be true in their hearts, this, is, this story is an echo of a greater story, or as C.S. Lewis put it in his book, The Weight of Glory, we were made for another world. And so astronauts leaving Earth to discover a shared and better future is actually a picture of our future hope as Christians. And more than that, their story actually gets to a crucial question. What would you be willing to give your life for? The people taking this journey will eventually die, but they don't care. They are willing to give everything for the sake of the mission, and they are willing to give everything because they can see beyond themselves to a shared and better future. Beyond today. And this is really the heart of the Christian gospel. Because there was a person who was willing to give everything for us, who looked beyond himself and came to our world on a rescue mission, just like these astronauts were willing to go to Mars. He knew he was going to die but he came anyway. He looked beyond his present circumstance to a shared and better future. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, had forever in view when he came to earth. And because of that, he changed the history of humanity. 
And so on Palm Sunday, which we celebrate today, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, but he knew what his end game was. And it was not to rule for the present moment as a military Messiah, but to establish his kingdom in our hearts and one day come back to establish his perfect rule on a renewed earth. This kingdom is not like anything the world has ever seen. In fact, his kingdom is a completely upside-down kingdom, which is the title of today's message. And so I invite you to join me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. We're going to be going verses 1 to 19. And we'll see three ways that Jesus turns the world upside down. And we're going to see them in three images. We're going to see the cult, the tree, and the temple. The cult, the tree, and the temple. Now before we explore this passage, would you please pray with me? Father God, we come before you, praising you, amazed at what you have done for us, Lord. We praise your name. And Father, as we look at your your word today, may you prepare our hearts that it would expose our need for you, that it would expose our our selfishness and our our self-righteousness, Lord, that we would recognize that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And so we humble, we ask that you would humble us today, Lord, and that you would use this time. In your Son's name we pray, amen. Now this week and next week, we are doing a mini Easter series entitled, Forever Starts Today. On Easter Sunday, we'll look at the implications of the resurrection of Jesus, but today, Let's orient ourselves to the beginning of Passion Week. Many commentators have noted that the gospel accounts have a disproportionate emphasis on the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, commentator D.A. Carson has even said that the gospels are, essentially, stories about the passion of Jesus with really long introductions. And so Mark's passion narrative runs from chapter 11 to 16, which means he spent two-thirds of his book talking about the first 33 years of Jesus' life and one-third talking about the last week of his life. Now, I would argue that it appropriately shows us the importance of Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. So here's how Mark begins in chapter 11, verse 1. He says this, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. Now let's just put ourselves in this scene here. Jesus is beginning his approach to Jerusalem. He's predicted his death three times already, the last one being in chapter 10, shortly before this scene. He tells his disciples as they're walking to Jerusalem that he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes who will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. And so as they're they're drawing near to Jerusalem in this scene, this reality must have been on the disciples' minds. They may have even thought that Jesus was having a bad idea or that he was crazy. And they're sitting there on the Mount of Olives, which, which the Mount of Olives sits directly east of Jerusalem and rises about 2,600 feet above sea level, which gave them a really good view of the Temple Mount. Now, the temple is going to play a very key role in this passage, and it's likely where Jesus, as he sits on top of the Mount of Olives, has his mind fixed. And the Mount of Olives is also significant because this is where Jesus will ascend in, to heaven in Acts chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Now let's pause again and just recognize the significance of this moment right here. Again, put yourself in this scene. Jesus has been talking about his death in Jerusalem 
And now that you're on top of the mountaintop, imagine you're one of the disciples. You're, you're sitting on top of this mountain, looking down into this very city where Jesus says he's going to die. Like the astronauts going to Mars, he knows what he's going to do, that he's going to give his life. What do you think is going through his head? Jesus is about to upend the temple, and almost 50 days later, you and as his disciple are going to be sitting there on top of this mountain, watching him ascend into heaven. Now, it would have been impossible for you to know at this point, but your whole view of the kingdom is about to be turned literally upside down. And then Jesus makes this peculiar request. He says, go get me a colt that no one has ever sat on. Which may seem peculiar, right? But it has great significance. In fact, the term colt can either mean a young horse or a donkey, and it had a direct correlation with the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which reads this. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a, don- on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the colt identified in this prophecy is identified as the mount of the Messiah, And so commandeering a cult was the prerogative of the king in ancient times, and the fact that this cult was never ridden was also regarded as sacred. Thus, Jesus riding to Jerusalem on a young donkey points to him being the Messiah. And so they go and they get him a cult. Verse 4, it says, And they went away and found a cult tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Now, some people ask them why they're doing this, and Jesus had already anticipated that, and so he told them what to say, and and they obeyed. Now, since the colt has never been ridden, there's no saddle on it. And so the disciples spread their cloak on the, disciple, on the donkey's back. Interestingly, you may also note that nowhere else in the Gospels is Jesus seen riding on an animal, which confirms, again, this royal significance here. Jewish pilgrims, when they came to Jerusalem, were walking, not riding on a donkey or horseback. This event is also reminiscent of several Old Testament scenes like the anointing and coronation of Solomon in 1 Kings 1. He also rides into Jerusalem on David's mule to music and to rejoicing. And so likewise, Jesus sits on the colt showing himself to be the king. And then he begins his royal ride into Jerusalem, verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that had been cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now the spreading of cloaks and branches were the kind of red carpet treatment they're giving Jesus here. They're rolling it out for him. The term branches is a general one that could refer to leaves or branches or or tall grass that were cut from a nearby field. It's interesting that only John's gospel refers to these as palm branches, which is where we get our title Palm Sunday from. But the branches put in Jesus' path, regardless, appear to be a spontaneous act to honor him. And Hosanna, as we sang earlier in our service, literally means save us. Save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was like they're throwing him a party and there should be this feast next. But what happens in verse 11? Look at this. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now that's odd. Jesus goes into the temple. He looks around. He gets the lay of the land. And then he calls it a night. He goes home and he goes to bed. What? 
I mean, I mean, I read through this and I thought, what does this have to do with the triumphal entry in chapter 11? I mean, why do all the commentators treat this like it's part of this passage? It seems to be very out of place, like a throwaway verse. It should maybe be, maybe we should just delete it from the sermon. Well, it may seem like nothing's going on and it doesn't have to do with anything. Like maybe it should fit with the cleansing of the temple. But if we look closely, there is something very important going on here. And don't miss it. Because notice that the psalm the crowd was quoting in verse 9 and 10 is Psalm 118, which reads, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But did you know that's only half the verse? Does anybody know the second half of this verse that they're referring to? Yeah, no, I, I didn't either. Because it's kind of like the show Don't Forget the Lyrics. Have you ever heard of that show? Yeah, me neither, until Pastor Dave introduced it to me. But here's the way the game show works. It, what they do is they play a song, and they give the contestants some of the lyrics, but they don't give it to all of them. But then they cut the song off abruptly, and in order for you to win money, you, you as the contestant have to remember the very next line of the song. Now, I thought today maybe we could practice this, right? Is there any singers out there? Okay. None? All right. Well, me neither, but I'm going to try anyway. I'll give you the beginning of the line. I, won't, I, don't, I won't promise what key it's going to be in, but I'll give you the beginning of the line, and we'll see if you can finish it, okay? So if you're a, a child of the 90s, maybe you remember this song. You are my fire, my one desire. Believe when I say want it that way. Backstreet Boys. Okay, good. All right. Now, maybe a little bit easier. Try this one. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. New Jersey. New Jersey. All right. Thank you. Good call, man. All right. How about this last one? Child of the 80s. And if you're a New Jersey fan, shot through the heart and you're to blame. Love a bad name, Bon Jovi. Right, thank you. You guys are great. You would have won. You would have won a lot of money. You should go on the show. All right. Now, friends, this is what's happening here in Psalm 118. Half the verse is quoted, but someone forgot the rest of the lyrics. And do you know who it was? It was the high priest. Because you see, back in their time, the king of Israel would enter the city just like this, after some big military victory or some festive occasion, and the people would recite Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. However, after the king, after, after that, the king would go through the city gate, he would walk through the crowd, and he would go on to where? To the temple. And in the temple area, the priests and the Levites would be there, and the high priest was supposed to come out and greet the king. He was supposed to quote the next line of the psalm. He was supposed to greet the king with the next part of the verse. The people were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the high priest was supposed to come out of the temple and say the next part of the verse. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. This was meant to bless the king and welcome him on behalf of the temple priests and those who worked at the house of the Lord. But Jesus, the king enters Jerusalem, goes through the crowd, comes to the temple, and what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens, the text says. Wait, you say, where's the high priest? I mean, the crowd remembered their line, but the high priest dropped the ball. I mean, he was not the guy you wanted at karaoke with you. He's not there. But here's the thing. The high priest didn't forget his line. He purposely didn't say it. 
In fact, he's not even there to greet Jesus because he's rejected Jesus. And so picture again this scene with me. Jesus comes to the temple, to his father's house, to be greeted. He looks around. He takes the the survey of the land. And what does he see? He sees nothing. Nobody's there. How does he feel? I mean, he's just looking around and thinking, where is everybody? I mean, it's, it's pretty sad. I mean, just picture, imagine, you throw a birthday party for your son or your daughter, and nobody comes. I mean, after you realize nobody's coming, how do you feel? How does your son or daughter feel? It's heartbreaking. And that's what's happening to Jesus here. He, he looks around, and nobody's there, which is why the Bible says, he came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. They missed it. Can you believe it? I mean, they rejected the coming of Messiah. In fact, Luke tells us that Jesus wept over Jerusalem that day. Jesus prayed, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you knew on this day what has come to you. It's a tragic story of rejection, but it actually points us to the first lesson about the upside-down kingdom that we see with the cult, and it's this. Jesus turns power upside down. Jesus turns power upside down. And don't miss this. Because in Jesus' day, Messiah would have been viewed as a powerful military leader who would ride into Jerusalem on an esteemed war horse. But what did Jesus do? I mean, Jesus Jesus deliberately rode into Jerusalem on a feeble donkey in accordance with the Scriptures. And in doing so, he flips the script on power. And it was noticed by the chief priests. I mean, that's why they weren't there to greet him. Because in redefining power, Jesus became a threat to their political power. And I may ask the question, where does Jesus need to turn our view on power upside down? Because the view of power in our world is all about today. It's all about the temporal. And as soon as we lose our perceived power, we think all hope is lost. In fact, Charles Colson former advisor to Richard Nixon, who later became a Christian, makes this observation about political power. He says, many Christians, like most of the populace, believe that political structures can cure all our ills. The fact is, however, the government, by its very nature, is limited in what it can accomplish. And what it does best is to perpetuate its own power and bolster its own bureaucracies. You see, if we place all our hope in politics, we will find that the government is a very lousy savior. In the kingdom of God, power is not limited to the temporal. God's power is eternal. He is sovereign over everything, and one day his kingdom will be established on this earth. And have you ever noticed that people who who crave power are often the most insecure people? I mean, look at the chief priests in this passage. As we will see, fear of losing influence will cause them to go to dark lengths to keep their power. Tim Cower makes this assertion. He says, power then is often born of fear. It gives birth to more fear. Powerful people do not like to admit they are, how weak they are. Because to admit how weak you are would mean you're not as powerful as you think. But we follow a savior who showed us that power is perfected in weakness. And Jesus didn't just ride into Jerusalem on a cult but he would be crucified on a cross. And in so doing, he disarmed the powers of this world by losing his power in order to save us. God's people are secure because we know that he holds this world in our hands and we recognize that any power we think we have is an illusion. 
Our Savior King has shown us a different kind of power. When he rode into Jerusalem on a cult, he turned that power upside down. And power means something very different in his kingdom. But our story doesn't stop there. The first scene was the cult, but the second scene is the tree. Now, after Jesus slept and his disciples decided to go on the move again after they slept, um, but we read from the text that it seems like they had a pretty rough night. Look at verse 12. It says, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, the place that Jesus was staying in Bethany apparently didn't have a good cook or he was extra hungry from all the walking that he was doing or they didn't feed him enough. But along the way, he spots something in the distance. This is what it says in verse 13. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, which meant it had leaves, he went out to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay, I can sympathize with Jesus. I mean, if I haven't eaten in a while, as my wife can attest, I get a little hangry. Maybe you do too. In fact, if there was a Jimmy John's in Jesus' day, he would have wanted his sub freaky fast. But this is Jesus we're talking about here. I mean, why is he taking his hunger out on a tree? Now, this is indeed a very puzzling scene because it appears at face value that Jesus is being very petty and vindictive. I mean, why is the God-man himself getting angry at a tree? I mean, didn't he know there wouldn't be any fruit on it? And this reality is made worse by Mark's editorial comment, which says that it wasn't the season for figs. So, I mean, the reason that there was no fruit on the tree was because it wasn't the season for them, right? And so Jesus curses the tree, and we learn in verse 21 that the tree withers and dies. Now, these verses are so confounding that the atheist Bertrand Russell singled them out in his essay, Why I Am Not a Christian. And this is what he wrote. He says, this is a very curious story because it was not the right time of the year for figs. And you really cannot blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in the manner of wisdom or in the manner of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known in history. Did you hear that? Bertrand Russell, the atheist, is questioning Jesus' character because he cursed the fig tree. Now, since people have this type of reaction to this passage, we should ask the question, what is Jesus really doing here? Well, the first thing we have to understand is that Middle Eastern trees bore two kinds of fruit. Before the figs came, leaves would start growing on the trees in the spring, as Mark notes in this passage. That was the season. And on a healthy tree, its branches would have bared something called nodules before the actual figs came. Now, nodules also were, were very good and abundant to eat, and travelers would be walking by, and they would pick some, and they would have some snacks, kind of like a Larabar or something like that. Uh, in fact, if you found a tree with, with leaves but no nodules, as Jesus did, you would know that something was wrong. Even though it looked okay from a distance, inside it was dying Growth without any kind of fruit is a sign of decay. And Jesus was simply pronouncing this to be the case here. Now, here is what we can't miss about this passage, and it's this. This scene takes place after Jesus' first arrival in the temple in verse 11, and before he goes back to the temple in verses 15 to 19. And Jesus was using the tree as an object lesson for his disciples. What he was saying is that it's a metaphor for Israel, and by extension, anyone who claims to be God's people. If God transforms your heart, there will be fruit. 
In other words, something will be different about you. In fact, this scene points us to our second lesson about the upside-down kingdom, and it's this, that Jesus turns our hearts upside down. Jesus turns our hearts upside down because the fig tree is a metaphor. Jesus is saying a fig tree might be diseased and dying on the inside even though it has leaves. If there's no fruit, there's something wrong. And the tree may appear to be healthy even though it's not. And so, friends, what he's saying to his disciples and about the chief priests is this. The same thing is true about our hearts. That on the outside, we may, be, we may appear to be doing all the right things. We can, we can go to church or we can go to Sunday school. We may even be able to quote a few Bible verses, right? But on the inside, our hearts haven't been changed. They're hard. We're self-righteous and unforgiving in the dealings with other people. We're always trying to make ourselves look good. Our prayer life is dead. We don't display real love. In other words, we are not really producing fruit in our lives. We're just busy with a bunch of religious activities. We have a bunch of leaves, but no nodules or figs. And this is the same thing that was happening with those amongst the religious leaders in the temple. And Jesus is saying here, don't be a fig tree with leaves only. Be a fig tree that bears fruit. Hearts that have been truly transformed by Jesus will bear fruit. So we've seen two images. The cult showed us that Jesus turns power upside down. The tree shows us that Jesus wants to turn our hearts upside down. But the final image will show us something even more significant. And it's the image of the temple. It's the image of the temple. You see, back in verse 1, Jesus and his disciples stood on the Mount of Olives, looking down over the city, eyes fixed on the temple mount. And in verse 11, Jesus enters the temple ungreeted. But in verses 15 to 19, he goes back a second time. And this time, he's not going to be missed by anybody. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. And began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. See, now we've reached this climactic scene. I know we had the triumphal entry, yes, in the beginning, but, but this is the reason Jesus came to Jerusalem. Jesus came to turn the temple upside down. And so after a long walk to Jerusalem, they enter the temple, and Jesus immediately starts causing a ruckus. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, we have to know a little bit about the temple itself. So the temple was built on this massive raised platform, and it had four courts. Let me show you a picture here. That out, the outer court in this picture, the, the one on the very outside, the biggest one, is the court of Gentiles. Right? That was the place where only a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, could enter. In fact, on those interior courts, there was a sign promising death to anyone who wanted to enter them if they, weren't, if they were a foreigner. The interior courts, which were made up of the court of women, the second biggest one there, the court of Israel for Jewish men, and then the, the court of priests, the closest one to the temple, which was only for priests, obviously. Um, when Jesus entered the temple area, he would have been going to the court of Gentiles, the largest section of the temple. And it was also the business center of the temple. There was quite an operation going on in there. And so this would have been the scene that Jesus walked into. He goes into the court of Gentiles, and there was tons of people who would have been buying and selling animals and exchanging currency from the money changer tables. 
I mean, the reason this is so important is because thousands, thousands of people flooded Jerusalem to buy tens of thousands of animals to be sacrificed on Passover. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus estimates that in Passover week, prepare yourself, 255,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple courts. And to that, I simply have to say, that is a lot of lambs. And so here's what the temple looked like, to give you a, a modern illustration. Just picture, picture our crazy and tumultuous financial trading floors. Maybe you even worked there. And then throw a bunch of livestock in. Throw in some sheep and some cows, maybe some baby pigs. And you just have all kinds of craziness going. I mean, just picture what would happen if this was the case. You got a, a big cow in your face, right? This was the scene that Jesus walked into in the temple. Or perhaps this other illustration might help. I lived in Denver for a number of years while I was going to graduate school. And here's the truth about Denver, if you've ever been there. Denver is a cow town that became a large city. It's just the truth. There's still elements of the cow town present. And one piece of evidence I would suggest to you is that once a year, the National Western Stock Show would come to Denver. And at the end of my time, as much as I tried to avoid it my first few years of living there, I agreed to go with some friends. And I have never, ever seen so many livestock and cattle milling about and present in my life. I mean, they were just everywhere. Look at, look at some of these pictures. Just crazy. The Bucking Broncos, it was crazy. And imagine you just got a bunch of auctioneers around the outside of the stock show going, oh, give me 40 for that, I'll take 90 for that, sold that guy over there, okay, I'll sell this one over here, big cattle, get ribbon for that guy, bring it over here. It, it was crazy, and it smelled. Oh, it smelled bad. But perhaps what I missed at the time was that I caught a little glimpse of what the temple scene looked like in Mark 11. Oh, and there's one more important thing to note. Rabbinic evidence actually suggests that all these shops for selling articles and sacrifice were originally located where? On the Mount of Olives, where Jesus and his disciples had been looking over Jerusalem, on the way into Jerusalem. But guess who moved the commerce into the temple courts? Caiaphas, the chief priest. And so Jesus' reaction coming into the temple was to start throwing furniture, which would have been unpleasant for the high priest to hear. And since the temple was so large, it was probably happening in a, a section of that court of Gentiles, but it wouldn't have mattered. It would have been enough for some of the leaders to run over and ask what was happening. And this is what they find in verse 17. And he, Jesus, was teaching them. And saying to them, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, do you see what Jesus is doing here? Because you don't want to miss it. I guarantee you the religious leaders, especially Caiaphas, would not have missed it. Because when Jesus called the temple a den of robbers, he was quoting from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 11, where cultic practices were condemned in the temple. And while the text doesn't say it, I think it may have been possible that Caiaphas and the chief priests were there, and Jesus was looking them in the eye as he offered this rebuke. I mean, just, just imagine this scene. Can you feel the, the tension in the air? Just imagine Jesus staring down Caiaphas and saying, you have made the temple a den of robbers. You have used these business practices to line your own pockets 
to keep your political power and your heart is far from God. You are the fig tree I was telling my disciples about. And you can see why Jesus was such a threat to the chief priests. But don't miss this. The teaching that Jesus was offering in verse 17 was revolutionary because he was about to change everything. And it points to our last lesson about the upside-down kingdom, and it's this. Jesus turns salvation upside-down. Jesus turns salvation upside-down. Because you see, the other quotation in verse 17 is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 56, verse 7. And it's so important, friends. Because you see, the Messiah was popularly expected to be this mighty military ruler who would come in But he also was popularly expected to come into Jerusalem and purge the city and the temple of Gentiles, of aliens, and foreigners. Because the Jewish people thought that salvation was only for them. But when Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7, he does the exact opposite. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for what? For all the nations. I mean, just just picture the scene again. With the religious leaders standing there, Jesus makes a statement that would have been earth-shattering. This is what they would have known. They would have known what it meant. Because Isaiah 56, 7 speaks of the extension of God's salvation to people who were formerly excluded from it. Foreigners, aliens, Gentiles like you and me. The passage Jesus quotes in the temple includes the very people Messiah was thought to exclude. And with this statement, Jesus all but announced that he would turn their view of salvation upside down. Mic drop. So Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a war horse, showing us the power is not what you think. The tree in the temple show us that God wants to change our hearts and view of salvation. Jesus wants us to see beyond the temporal. He doesn't want us to miss forever by focusing on today. And that's exactly what the chief priest did. Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, what Jesus said, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now, whether they were present at this event or not, the chief priests and scribes, The people of influence heard about it, and they said, enough is enough. This Jesus is a threat to our control and power, and we're going to end him. The text says they were afraid because Jesus was gaining control of the people, and the chief priests and scribes had a decision. They literally could either crown him or kill him. And of course, by the end of the week, we know what happens. In fact, it's not been forgotten for over 2000, almost 2,000 years. Because Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, God himself, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, upending our view of everything. He was the true sacrificial lamb who would die once and for all. And salvation would be available to the Gentiles. And the economic industry of the temple would no longer be needed. In fact, the temple would not be needed anymore because Jesus tore the veil. And now the presence of God no longer is contained in a place, but dwells in the temple of our hearts. Jesus will reign forever and ever, not just for today. Don't miss that. Because we had the same question to ask ourselves. Will we crown him or will we kill him? Will we allow Jesus to rule our hearts or will we seek to live for ourselves 
reigning over our hearts and lives and living for the moment. By doing so, we're the ones who nailed Jesus to the tree. And perhaps today we should stop and ponder this question. Who are the real villains on Good Friday? It's kind of like that kid's TV show, Scooby-Doo. Did you ever see that lovable Saturday morning cartoon with Shaggy and Fred and Daphne and Velma and, of course, their dog, Scooby-Dooby-Doo? saying, Pastor Bob, where are you going with this? Well, the gang, as they were called, were always getting themselves into trouble here or there. They were getting robbed, scared, lost, and in each adventure, their task always remained the same. What was it? To catch the villain, to discover the villain. And whether the villain was a ghost, a witch, or any other ghoul, I mean, every episode would end the same. The gang would catch the villain, and in every single episode, the villain would turn out to be the person you never expected, right? I mean, just picture the gang chasing the, the person through what they obviously thought was the villain. The assumption was that the villain would always be this really mean tour guide or that, that obsessive park ranger or, or that really mean gasoline attendant from the beginning of the episode. But as the gang ripped off the mask of the villain, it was always a surprise. The villain was always this really nice janitor, right? Or the sweet teacher or the seemingly good guy. It was never the person you expected. And here's my point. And this is what's so convicting. Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo actually teaches us precisely what Christianity has been trying to teach us about Good Friday. That the villain and the monster aren't who we thought they were. In the gospel stories, everyone fails. Everyone sins against Christ. Even the best disciples, even the good guys even Peter. In the end, the villain is us. We are the villain. We are the ones who nail Jesus to the cross because of our sin. Every time we sin, every time we try to be king of our lives, every time we fail and we will, the nail, we drive the nails into Jesus' hands and his feet. Because the reality is, friends, we are just like the chief priests. We want power for ourselves, and so often we fail to surrender to the true king who rode into Jerusalem on a cult. Like the fig tree, we are often more concerned about how we look on the outside than having real fruit on the inside. And like the temple back then, even today, we can turn our worship and service of God into something that is about us instead of about him. But praise God that there's really good news that his, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who laid aside his power and made the ultimate sacrifice for us, who turned this world upside down and opened the temple gates for Gentile sinners like you and me, who has the power to change hard hearts like mine, and who rules forever as the sovereign of the upside-down kingdom. Let me invite the worship team to come forward, and they're going to lead us in one more worship song. And as they do, I would give you this invitation, offer you this invitation this week. And it's simply this. Take off your mask and admit that you are the villain. Admit that you're a sinner in desperate need of God's grace. Admit that you're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior and you nailed him to the cross and I nailed him to the cross with our sin. And when we admit that, we will experience his grace abounding. As Charles Wesley said in his famous hymn, 
And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me? Who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? And maybe today you've been living so much for the moment that you've missed the person who can offer you forever. Friends, don't miss forever by focusing on today. Let's not be like the chief priest. This week is the most important of the Christian calendar. And so I encourage you, make it special by spending time with our Savior, reflecting on his sacrifice on the cross. Consider attending our midweek service as we prepare for Easter. Maybe even invite somebody next week. Whatever it is for you, let's not focus just on today, but on forever, where King Jesus will be crowned in glory, our resurrected King. Amen.